Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Maybe I'm alone in this. I don't think I am, and actually I'll verify why that's the case, but um, online reviews have changed the way that I go to restaurants. And I recently actually just experienced this. Last night we were out with some friends. Adam, if you would pull the gain down just a little bit on my mic. Thank you, friend. Uh, we were out to a restaurant with friends, and this is the way that I order now when I go to a restaurant. I, say, I ask this question. I want to know what, they, what the server, when they come and take my order, what the server likes to eat and what is the most popular. Because here's what online reviews have done for me. Like when I go to Amazon and whether I'm looking for a hairbrush or a vacuum cleaner, I, I get a lot of information out of knowing like what's the most popular hairbrush. What are the problems that people have with the hairbrush? What do they like about it? And so it changes the way that I go to a restaurant now. I want that information. Like I wish on the menu they had like a certain number of like stars like they have on Amazon and you can see what people actually like. The truth is we have reviews all over the place uh, in our world. We love to review things, you know, from, from paintbrushes to plumbers. We review things all the time. And did you know that people also review churches? You know, that's a thing. Like, you can actually go on Google. You can do it, actually. Yeah, leave a review for our church. That's great, too. But people leave reviews for things. In fact, uh, they, if they leave reviews for churches. In fact, there's actually a show called Church Hunters that does just that. that reviews. And so I wanted to show you a kind of a shortened version of that rev, uh, Church Hunters video clip. So here it is, Dan. Go ahead and fire that off. Nick and Molly just moved to the city and can't agree on what they want. They're young and energetic and looking for a new church home. We'll take some personality tests, tour the sites, ask some questions, and based on taste, experience, and location, we'll find them the perfect congregation. I'm Corey Clark, and welcome to Church Hunters. We're so excited to find a church. We just started dating. Um, with the churches we go to now, just not like for us, just not really doing it for us, you know? Right, I, I go to a satellite campus. I just find it hard to connect emotionally with a video screen, it's just. Okay, you cried during Cake Boss. So like, we've been doing a lot of services online, a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of preachers we do like. Really good, but we want, we want serious yet funny. Yeah, like commanding of the stage yet relatable, you mm -hmm. know? We're more looking for uh, the humor of Andy Stanley with the body of Stephen Furtick. Hey guys, What's happening? I'm Corey. Good to see you, my name's Nick, this hey, is Molly. Hey guys, welcome to Church Hunters. This is your first church, this is Creekside First Baptist. So while it is traditional, it's still pretty current. Just okay. this year, the pastor started untucking his shirts. Oh, Ooh, wow. that's good. Big deal. He does dress his age though, so don't worry. He's past the Osteen suit phase, but he hasn't gone full Giglio yet. Okay, oh. so there's holes in the knees or no? Well, it's frayed, but no holes. Frayed, oh. no, okay, got it, yeah. perfect. Okay. So hey, let me show you around, okay? Right, let's Come on. do it. I do love this lobby. It's a great lobby, you know, yeah. it's not too big, not too small, yeah. should be enough room to catch up, chat with your friends. That's all you need. But here's a great thing. There's a bunch of side exits, so if you need to leave early and catch the game, you can do that. Got it. Yes. Oh. 
Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. No, I, First Baptist? Who names a church that anymore? I just... Not these days. We're looking no. for like a Thrive Church, maybe Relevant Church, I don't know, Radiant Church, something. This is the soundboard they use here. Okay. Now remember, right. it's pretty traditional here. So, when Sunday comes around, they turn it way down low. Got it, <laughs> yeah. But the one knock on this church, they still use the child care numbering system on the screens. Ooh, oh. for the... Yeah. Yep. Or as the moms like to call it, the Sanctuary Walk of Shame. The Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional for, for us. For us. I mean, the pastor's main point, 157 characters. I can't tweet that. I really think you guys are going to love this place. I like we it. We do. We like Feels it. Great. Yeah. You know, it's diverse, but it's not like too diverse, you know? Uh, um, scripture heavy sermons? Oh, or, yeah. 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 What about, uh, is it community oriented? Absolutely. Great. Oh, women in ministry? The parking situation, you guys gotta see it. Super rare nowadays. Come with me. There's like a, a maybe for when my parents come to into maybe. town yeah. for a church for Christmas, Easter type of church. Like a holiday, holiday type church. One of the main reasons that I love this church for you guys is that on your personality test, Molly, you scored high in service and hospitality. Oh, babe. And there's wow. a great welcome team you could join. Perfect. Okay. And then Nick, you scored really high in need for accountability. Wow. And the men's groups here are amazing. You're just, you're just gonna put that out there? Hey, just God like knows that? your heart, okay? On the next episode of Church Hunters. I think you're really gonna love this place. They take relevance to a whole new level. This church identifies as inter-denon-denominational. This pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. All right, it's a little ridiculous, right? But it also pokes fun at some things that maybe strike a little close to home for some of us. You know, maybe you can identify with some of that. It's fun sometimes to see our preferences played out like that. But biblically speaking, Right? Every church that's following after Jesus is a part of the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that every church equally delights the heart of God. No. Why would I say that? It, because in the book of Revelation, there's actually a segment where Jesus talks about seven different churches and how they kind of line up with what he wants from them. He reviews the churches, much like we would review many things that we might experience. So he looks at seven different churches and he has a little bit of a format that he runs through. First, he gives them a commendation. This is what you're doing well. This is what I see in you. Then he gives them a concern. Hey, this is an area where maybe you're drifting into a danger zone and you need to pay attention. He gives them a consequence. Hey, if you don't pay attention, this is what's going to happen. And then there's a challenge in front of them. We're beginning a new series and it's called Review. Jesus' review of the church. What Jesus says, I mean, stop to think about it. What, what we might delight in, whether or not the music is exactly the way that we want it to be, or does the sermon go too short or too long, like all of those things, all right, but I wonder, I wonder if Jesus' opinion for his church is not more critical than our opinion of the church. And so what we're going to consider this weekend is this. If, is that if Jesus were to come and look in Grace Fellowship Church, what would his review be? What would he see? What would he commend? What would he say, hey, you're drifting into a danger zone here? What challenge would he give us? Adam, go ahead and pull, the, pull that down just a little bit further. There's some rollover there. Thank you, friend. Appreciate you serving. 
The, the study comes from the book of Revelation. I, I, if you don't already have your Bible open, go ahead and turn it open. Revelation is um, easy to find, even if you're not real sure about the Bible, because it's the last book in the whole thing. So just turn all the way to the end. We'll be in chapter 1 and chapter 2 here this morning. Uh, but what I want to do is, <clears throat> it's going to feel a little different than a normal sermon for us. I'm going to deal with some of the background contextually, spend a little bit more time in a teaching kind of role um, but I want to spend time in the book of Revelation very quickly, and then we're going to zoom in on chapter 2 where Jesus leaves his first review for one of the churches. Now, whenever we approach Scripture, we always have to understand what kind of literature are we actually reading. So, if I receive a, a love poem from, from my bride… It's going to have a certain kind of word usage. It's going to use metaphor. My dear, you are as glorious as, you know, you are as wonderful as, you know, all of those sorts of things. We're going to read a poem very differently than you would read an instruction manual from Ikea. Except you don't read those. They're pictures. There's no words in them. So you'll read them differently than you would read like a legal document. And it's important whenever we open God's Word, a lot of our confusion and even twisting of what we read occurs when we don't understand the genre of literature that it actually is. And this book of Revelation is a prophetic letter that's written from Jesus, this would be a lot of red letters in this, from Jesus to John, one of his best friends. John was an apostle. So this is a, a, a man that walked alongside Jesus, that received instruction from Jesus, that was commissioned by Jesus, given special authority by Jesus, and there were several of them. The interesting thing about John is John is the only apostle that didn't die for his faith. Now, um, a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a young man that was asking some questions about faith and was just struggling, and it's, they were meaningful questions, asking a question like, how do I know that this is true. How, don't I, how do I know this isn't just made up? And actually, I think the apostles are one of the best apologetics for the validity of what we believe and what we understand to be true in Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, because there are some people would say, well, the story of Jesus, it, it was just made up. You know, maybe they got together and Jesus died and they said, well, let's just tell everyone he rose from the grave, right? Uh, let's, they get their story straight, they, they, they hash it out, they say, all right, first we're going to say this, then we're going to say that, then we're going to say this, and then, and then we'll, you know, we'll take over the world after that point. Um, but here's the thing about the Roman culture at that point in time, it was actually very hostile uh, to Christianity in particular. This was right around the time of uh, some really brutal emperors, one of them was Nero, when he found out that the Christians were there and they were winning people to Christ and growing in strength and popularity, he would take them and he would use them as torches along the roads on the way into Rome. He would take whole groups of people and put them in a ring with lions in the Colosseum. Uh, he was very, very brutal. So it was a very hostile space for, uh, for Christians. Now, imagine you're an apostle and you've made something up. It's just all a lie, right? The moment they threaten you with death, you go, <laughs> it's not true, I give up. It's not, it's not really what it is. And yet all of them held true to what they believed about Jesus and they didn't recant. John was the only apostle that didn't 
that didn't, uh, it wasn't a martyr. In fact, they tried to kill him. They tried to, they plunged him into boiling water, and he miraculously was unscathed. Uh, But then they banished him to the island of Patmos. This is shortly, it's just right out off of Turkey in the Mediterranean, kind of like Australia's was like a, a prison state, you know, that's what Patmos was. And then some 50 years later, after Jesus had ascended back to heaven, John, an aging, older man, is on the island of Patmos, and, and, he, and we kind of hear what he receives, this revelation. It's where we, it's not revelations, by the way, it's revelation, uh, and, and he receives this from Christ. Now, for some of us, and maybe you spent some time studying the scripture, like, Revelation is very confusing. It feels weird sometimes to go into that book. It can feel very confusing, but it's not meant to be. In fact, it's meant to bring understanding. It's meant to bring clarity. The word revelation comes from the word uh, apocalypsis that we get like apocalypse from. Now, when I hear apocalypse, I tend to think of like... um, like a zombie infection taking over the world, the end of the world, civilization falling apart. That's what we associate with the apocalypse. But here's what the word actually means. It actually means this. It means to unveil or to expose in full view something that was hidden. So here are these Christians. They hear or they see about Christ. He raises from the dead. They all see this. This is like, this is a big deal. He's the Messiah. I'm going to follow after him. There are people that hear about that, and yet there's still things that are unknown to them. They didn't have the full Bible, the full scripture like we have. They didn't have the, the writings and the gospels and the epistles and all of these things in the New Testament. They didn't have that. And, and they, so there's question marks for them. Like, What's on the other side of this? Is is Jesus ever coming back? What's going on with all of that? And so Jesus gives this apocalypse, this revelation to pull back the curtain and say, I want you to know some things about me. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know about my majesty. I want you to know about my glory. I want you to know about what justice looks like and when I'm going to return. And so in the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, go ahead and open it. We'll be in Revelation 1. We'll start in verse 9 today. It says this. It says, I, John, he's identifying who he is, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering in the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. It's a greeting. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So because he was living out his faith, he got banished there. It says, on the Lord's day, so Sunday, that's what we would understand it to be, I was in the spirit, he was praying, he was communing with God, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, you're going to hear that a lot, like, that was words, like a trumpet, and it said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So I want to show you a map here, and I think the map might help us a little bit as you as, as, as we hear what was just spoken there. So what you're looking at is modern-day Turkey. Um, off in the blue, that's the island of Patmos. That would be in the Mediterranean Ocean. Now, I'm going to read for you those seven churches, and I want to see if you can see the pattern emerge from the map. Maybe you're a map person and you love maps. <laughs> I, see, I see one person I figured is a good map person. This is what he says. You'll see something fascinating here. He says, To the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see, it, you see it happen? Right? It, it went right around that circle. 
Two things that I think are really important to note when we open this book. The first thing is that he's writing to actual people that lived in an actual time and an actual space, just like we're in this room right here. It wasn't like a long time ago in a land far, far away. There, no, it wasn't that. It, it was meant to show up in a local body, and it was meant to be read. Now, the other thing is really interesting. It was actually meant to go on the postal route, right? So it would go in a series from every church, and they would all listen to what Jesus had to say to them. So that tells us the second thing that it's meant for everyone to read, It's meant to be read out loud and for everyone to know kind of, hey, this is what Jesus thinks about us, this open mail. Now, what this tells me in this letter is that that while Scripture scripture is is not written to us, who is it written to? It's written to, to those seven churches. It's not written to us, but it is written for us. It was written for us to to hear and, and peek in that open piece of mail and see what Jesus had to say to them. This is what he said after that. He said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, who was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was, the sound of, was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Again, this is prophetic literature, like an oracle. It just has a lot of language. Like, we don't talk that way. But for this ancient culture, that would have been something that they, it, it meant a lot to them to have that kind of rich imagery. Notice he said things like this. He didn't say like, hey, he was covered in wool. He said his hair was, light, was white like wool. His face was bright like the sun. It's, it, we do this all the time. And you use metaphor. We see it in the scripture and we're like, so you're saying that it looked like, no, 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 it's a metaphor. We do that. Like if we went to a stadium and everyone was real pumped up and they're all jumping and be like, man, it was wild. They were all pounding their feet and it sounded like a train was rushing by. We use metaphor to express deep meaning for us. And this is what he goes on to say. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is what John starts with. This is what Jesus starts with. Hey, I know you heard about me, and I know you heard some things about me being like, like I can do some miracles, and, 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 but, but you gotta understand that whatever John saw, that whatever Peter saw, they saw a, a humble um, Jesus in kind of a meek state. He, he, had, he had come to earth, God in a bod, and he had, he had subjected his divinity to his humanity out of obedience to the Father. But now Jesus reveals himself in the glorified state. And John putting words to what he saw was saying it, it wasn't that, but it was like it. It was, it was powerful. It was huge. 
What John records is, is so important, and this is what Jesus steps in and saying, hey, you need to know who you're worshiping. You need to know who I am. That may have been hidden to you, that may have been confusing, but it doesn't need to be because it impacts everything that follows from this point. To recognize who it is that you're worshiping. And it's important for you, and it's important for me, church, because often we can think about Jesus, you know, like, like white-skinned Jesus with brown hair. Look, he's from the Mediterranean. He didn't have white. He probably had dark skin, dark hair, you know. But we have this, like, picture of Jesus meek and holding the lamb and his pet. Like, no. He is the son of God, and he is kind and loving-hearted. But he is also, he is also awesome and ferocious. And if we were to be before him, we would be like John, who was his best friend, and he fell on his face as though dead. Beloved <laughs> church, do we know that that's the Christ that we serve? He continues, write therefore what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, and these are important. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, when we read the word angel, the, the Greek word behind that is actually the word messenger. It was also used to denote people who were um, like humans who were messengers, carried a message, carried a commission to communicate something from a leader or a king or whatnot. So uh, it is my opinion that he's actually, angel's not the best word for that, that is actually speaking to the leaders that God would speak through to lead his, uh, his people. That's what the seven stars are. And then he talks about the seven lampstands. Now, it's interesting. We don't use lampstands, but it was very significant and, um, for the ancient Hebrews. In the temple, it would be a dark place, and so they had these sacred lampstands that were created, looked like a menorah or something like that. And so notice, though, what a lamp does. A lamp, a lamp doesn't create light. It is just a platform for the light. The light doesn't come from the lamp. It comes from the source of light that's on the lamp. And Jesus is saying the churches are the lampstands. And that's really significant because he says that he's in the lampstands. In other words, Jesus did not say, hey, see you later. I'm, I'm bugging out. I'm going to go up to heaven and be with God. No, he said, I'm among the lampstands. I'm among the churches. I care about you. I care about how you're following after me. And then, okay, so that's the opening bit of this. And then Jesus addresses the first church. And that's the church uh, in the town called Ephesus. Revelation 2, verse 1, it says, To the angel, to the leader, to the pastor, to the elders at the church in Ephesus, write this. Now, Ephesus, we'll just pause there. Ephesus, and again, this is different territory than we've always been. There's a lot of teaching, so stay with me. Ephesus uh, was a powerful geographic city in Turkey. It was a major trade route. People would have come in and out of that space all the time. They had a huge um, harbor constantly full of ships. Religiously, it was super important because there was a temple to uh, uh, Artemis, otherwise, otherwise known as Diana, and it was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was bigger than a football field at 127 columns. There's a, 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 a historian from antiquity. He wrote this about this temple of Artemis. He says, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon on which is a road for chariots, 
and the statue of Zeus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. So this was a significant center of religion, of, uh, of temple practice in this significant geographic place. In the temple, they would have expressed their religious fervor through a lot of sexual immorality. So oftentimes it would be like they probably take some sort of substance, and it doesn't matter if you were married or not. You would step in there, and the way you would worship it would be a temple prostitute. You would leave your wife behind, and you would join yourself to a temple prostitute. That was just the environment of what took place there. In the temple, anyone that would come in, they were affirmed, you know, hey, you want to worship your God? No problem. Come in here. Worship your God. That's all good. So they were a bunch of relativistic pluralists with confused sexual identities. Does that sound familiar at all with the culture that we live in as well? Because of all of those things, this huge temple, major port, a lot of culture coming in, coming out, a lot of influence flowing in, a lot of influence flowing out, because of that, it was economically uh, very, very important. And so there was a lot of silversmiths who would create these small little um, idols of princess, uh, excuse me, of, not princess, of, uh, of, of Artemis, of the goddess Artemis. And, and that was a major part of their economics. In fact, when Paul shows up, he starts planting a church there, and he tells them, hey, there is one true God, and you need to know about who Jesus is. And so many people started following after Jesus that it disrupted the trade of these silver idols. And a riot broke out because this guy is like, hey, this is an insult to our craft. It's messing with my income, and it's an insult to Artemis. This is not good. And they went about trying to like stop and shut down the whole thing. A whole riot broke out because of that. Paul steps in, he tells them about Jesus, this church blossomed up, so many people start following after Christ that it like starts shutting down the temple. And so it's a very influential church. They had unbelievable leadership. The apostle Paul himself starts this church. Timothy takes over. Both of those guys are in the New Testament. And then when that's done, the apostle John, the, 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 the guy who wrote this book, He was the pastor of that church. So, (laughs) the apostle John was someone that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked to John and said, John, I want you to take care of my mom. Take care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So that meant when John, if he he did what Jesus asked him to do, that means Mary was with John. Mary was at this church. Could you imagine having a Christmas pageant and the kids are putting on the Christmas pageant, <laughs> acting it out, and Mary's like, that's not how it went. I was there. You guys are doing it wrong. You know, like That's a big deal to have the mother of Jesus in this place. So they had amazing influence. The culture was going, and because of that, as the church started to blossom in this place, there's all of these influences coming into here. They didn't have the written word of God yet in the New Testament yet. There's people who would say, hey, you need to know this is a, a, maybe a different way of thinking about Jesus, and they had to evaluate that, and they had to say, no, 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 no that's, that's not true, that's not true. And it was this major place of influence coming in, flowing out. The church broadcasted from that space. And that's the context that Jesus is writing to when he says, hey, church in Ephesus, 
These are the words, verse 2, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now listen, listen, church of Ephesus. I know you have great leaders. Paul, Timothy, John, my mom is there. <laughs> right? I know you have great leaders, but I want you to know that I've put them there and I can take them out. Don't forget who you're worshiping. I'm, I'm over that. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and, and you've not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus gives a review of this church. He gives them a, condom, uh, a commendation. He gives a concern. He gives a consequence, and he gives a challenge. First, he gives the commendation. He says, I see you. I, I, I'm amongst the landstands. I, I see your hard work. It's the word to like toil and labor. I, 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 see, I see that you're, you're persevering. These are people who are doing right things. Maybe you've heard of the word orthodoxy. It's this idea of right thinking. There's also a word called orthopraxy, which is right doing. Jesus would say, you are doing the right kinds of things. So if I were to walk into your church, you would have you have excellent volunteers. They have been trained well. Your, your volunteer rate is really, really high compared to other places. You guys are out serving the poor. You're, you're, you're stocking the soup kitchen. You, when someone needs to move in your church, you're like, we are there. How can I help? You, you are active. You are working diligently. These are people that had some hustle, and they were persevering. When things got difficult, they didn't give up. They continued. When someone suffered, they didn't give up their faith. Jesus says, you've done all of that, and you've not even grown weary when it got hard. Now, I know, like, I, I feel, like, weary in the middle of two years of this pandemic. At the beginning, it was like, yeah, we got this. We can do this together. Woo. And then, like, now, it's like, I'm just weary. I'm just weary of it. Like, this is hard. And Jesus would say, hey, the, the, your faith, as you walked it out and, per, and, and, and trial came in, you had joy and, and you didn't grow weary. He commends them for, for their, their actions, their orthopraxy, but he also says your orthodoxy, your right thinking was spot on. You care about doctrine. You care about false teachings. He says this. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. And he's not talking about, hey, people that don't know any better and they're just doing their best. But not. He's like people that are deliberately walking in disobedience and defiance against God whose lives, they're just a wrecking ball waiting to swing. And he says, I, I appreciate that you cannot 
stand those kinds of people that through their disregard just destroy everywhere they go. He says, you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them to be false. So the church is blossoming. It's starting to grow. Someone comes in and says, hey, well, this, did you know that Jesus really wasn't fully human? And they're going, no, 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 that doesn't make sense with what we know to be true. Or they'll say, you know, he wasn't fully God. No, no they, they challenged false teachings. So they would have had excellent uh, it's like Sunday schools. They would, have a, they would have had a 101 level class, basics of the Bible. 201 level class, how to interpret the Bible. 301, what are, whole, what are the spiritual gifts? 401, how we understand you know, the end times or something like that, right? Uh, defense against the dark arts, right? So they would have had classes for all of that stuff. The elders would have been active in, in staving off false teaching that was coming in. And the people would have been quick to call that out. And in fact, in verse 6, it says, you have this in your favor. You, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. I did a lot of research this week, and nobody knows what the Nicola- who the Nicolaitans are. What we do know is that they were syncretists. That's a, a long word, syncretists. And here's what syncretists mean. Syncretist means you have the understanding about Jesus, and you pull it together with your culture. So this is what the Nicolaitans did. They said, all right, um, well, we're following after Jesus, but you, you shouldn't go into that temple of Artemis and, and be one with that prostitute. That's not okay. But it is okay if you have uh, sexual relations just outside of your marriage. Like, that's okay. So they, they, they melded their, their cultural worldview with a little bit of Jesus. They just got a little bit of Jesus, but they got a lot of culture in their life. Like, Syncretism is something that still affects us today. The Nicolaitans were, were that. They were syncretists. And Jesus says, you hate their practices. Now, notice this. He doesn't say you hate them, but you hate their practices. It's destructive. It's, it's wrong as bad. We can, we can hate the practices without hating the person. Jesus said, hey, you guys, you guys have some things that you're doing well. You're persevering. You're, you're standing against false teaching. You guys know how to serve. That's wonderful. I commend you for that. But then Jesus, you can almost feel the change in, in pace in him speaking. And he says, I have a concern, though. I have a concern. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. And some of your Bibles might say you have forsaken your first love, but it's more more accurately understood as you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. That's, that's the challenge. He says this, if you don't repent, and this is the consequence, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. You're getting all the doctrine right. You guys believe the right things, you're serving, but you, you used to have love that used to motivate you, you used to have love for each other, but now that's gone and it's waned and it's not there anymore. This hard work that you're putting in, it's, it's because of obligation. It's not because I'm the object of your affection. You used to have delight, and now it's been replaced by duty. You used to love me, and you used to love others, but now that's gone. 
You're in this environment where you're attacked, where it's, it's not hospitable for you, and I understand that you're, you're kind of defending yourself against that, but in that defense, you've lost the love that you had at first. And it's, a, it's like a disinterested lover. All duty, but no delight. All, all obligation, but never the object of desire or affection. All of the warmth, all of the affection is gone. Going through the motions, but the heart, the heart's not there anymore. When I was in high school, I, I loved uh, orchestral music. I was studying music even in high school, and I would participate in like honors orchestras and uh, would travel to go do that. And it was this neat thing, and I played uh, timpani, kettle drums. There were some absolutely transcendent moments for me. I, I went to a, um, in college, I went to a, an arts festival, and I remember being there playing timpani, and I'm, there's like three or four double basses there, and a harpist there, and this beautiful string section, and, and oboe, all these masterful, masterful players, and I'm in the middle of that sound, and, and it enraptured my soul, and it was transcendent, and it moved me. It moved me. It was beautiful. It was It was wonderful. And I loved it. And at our wedding, um, we were poor. Uh, we, we, we went to a small like chapel, like a little auditorium. And I was poor, but because I was a part of the music department, all of my friends played for free, and they were all pretty good. So we had a brass ensemble play antiphonally. And what that means is they were flanking the whole, uh, the whole space. And I, I remember that sound, I mean, that sound, I and mean, we had like, kids had to like put, close their ears, it was just, it just enraptured, it just wrapped you, and I remember my, my bride coming around the corner, and they change key, and the music moves, and everyone turns and looks at her, and it's just this moment of complete transcendence, and beauty, and glory. It, it reminded me of like what you would imagine it felt like to be Luke Skywalker and Han Solo at the end of New Hope walking down the throne room, you know, where the John Williams music kicks in and it's like, this is that moment. It was like that, but in my heart and in my soul. But as I studied in, co in college, as I continued to go, I needed to put in practice time and I was dutiful to make sure I understood everything about music and I would practice two hours a day. And, and, and as I played more and more I played with like professional musicians and I started to realize that some of the most miserable people were those people that were paid to do it. <laughs> they just showed up and they went through the motions. Their music was beautiful, but they were like dead on the inside. They didn't like doing that anymore. So as I exited college, I largely stopped playing that kind of music. I decided to like pursue sacred music, church stuff like we do here. And that's wonderful and I love it. About a year ago, I was at my dad's graduation. He was being awarded an honorary doctorate at Grace College and Theological Seminary, and a brass ensemble was playing, and they played that same song at our wedding. And I just stopped, and I was like having a major emotional moment, not just because of the attachments to the wedding, but because it was this space. It was like, this used to feed my soul. I remember that sound. Where has that been? How, how has 20 years gone by? And that, that thing that used to be a fire in my soul is dead and it's gone. What's more is like my children that I love, 
they, they, they know the, 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 you know the rock and roll music and stuff, but they've never experienced that. So about a month ago, I took them to the National Philharmonic Orchestra. They're playing The Planets by Holst. And so we were up on the mezzanine, and again, just this moment of transcendence as I heard this. It was, it was amazing. It was beautiful. But it wasn't just the music itself. It was me saying, I used to be that timpani player. I used to be surrounded by that. What happened? How did my love go cold? I miss it. Because duty replaced delight. And obligation replaced the object of my desire. My love had grown cold, to quote the righteous brothers. I had lost that love and feeling. Where did it go? Where did it go? Do you know, do you know what I was doing and what I'm doing right now? I'm doing what Jesus said is the fix for that. He said, remember how far you have, you have fallen. Rem- remember what it was like to discover me. Remember what it was like to discover grace and mercy for the first time. Remember what it felt like to realize, hey, my, your sins can be forgiven. Remember what it feels like to say, my sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Remember what it felt like to have the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, you're mowing the lawn, and you're like, I feel... I could just feel joy that I can't express or understand. The Holy Spirit came over me and reminded me that I am sealed and a part of God's family. Remember what it felt like to feel the joy of saying, you know what, I've experienced God's love and his forgiveness and you need to experience that too. And it flows out of you and you want to tell people about that. Remember what that's like. Remember how far you have fallen. You know, it's possible as a church to have all of the doctrine and all of the teaching and all of the serving and all of the systems right, but to be completely disconnected from the love and the joy of our salvation. And the love and the joy of that that first love that we had is something I've, I've seen in my life. I've seen it in other people's lives. You accept Christ, and it means so much to you. And you experience the Holy Spirit, and you find, you find yourself like getting connected with other people who love Jesus too, and so those relationships start to define you, and it doesn't just become, hey, these are good friends. It's like, this is my tribe. This is, these are my people. And you start to see the world around you and say, hey, you know what, they, they don't really like my tribe, and so I'm going to kind of like defend ourselves and, and protect our crew from these people that are on the outside, and I care about these things, so I'm going to protect them. And you start thinking like, well, my kids are a part of this too. I don't want them to have like identity-confused issues and dysphoria problems. i got to protect myself from them. And so all of a sudden, you find yourself like battling people outside the church. You find yourself worrying about things that happen inside, and you're disconnected from that first love that you had. Your love has grown cold. Jesus says, all the things that you're doing are great. <laughs> like You to be commended. Don't stop studying God's word. Don't stop serving. Don't stop giving. Those are great things. But don't forget about your first love. Don't do that. He says, if you do, this is what's going to happen. Your lampstand is going to be removed and your light is going to get snuffed out. He's not talking about losing your salvation. What does a lampstand do? It brings a light into a dark place. 
He's saying if you fail to operate from love, if you lose that connection, if you start seeing other people as enemies rather than those people that God loves, that we're called to, like, you remember, you remember what it felt like to be an enemy of God and then you're made whole? Like, you need to have compassion for those other people. Don't see them as the enemy. Remember that if you, if you don't, your lampstand is going to be removed and your light is going to be snuffed out and your gospel witness goes away. So, so do the study, do the serving, do the giving, persevere, do all of that, but don't lose your first love. I, I think that calls all of us just to stop and say, all right, if I were to like, if I was to rate, how much does the gospel get a grip on my heart? Because like, time has gone on and it just doesn't feel like it does like it used to. If you were to rate that and say, this is, where, this is where I'm at on the continuum, where would you put you? And here's what we need to be very, very aware of as a church, is that there is a gravitational pull for every organization to turn inward. I have seen it happen over and over and over and over and over again. And all of a sudden you say, well, we love each other a lot, but where are all the young people? And all the people we've gained, we've just taken them from other churches. Where's our gospel witness? I wonder if Jesus were to look at our church, how would he review us in this area? How would he say, hey, do you still love me? And do you love the people that I love too? Does that motivate you? Keep serving. Keep, 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 keep hanging on to doctrine. That's all good things, but do you love me? Do you love me and does it motivate you? I'm gonna ask the band to come up. I just want you to just maybe linger in that if you can and, and ask yourself some of those questions. They're gonna come up and get situated, but I wanna pray and they're gonna move around a little bit as we do this, but let me pray and just uh, ask, the, ask the Spirit to maybe guide us to what he wants us to do with this. God, I see it in my own heart. I, uh, I'm a task-oriented individual and so I wanna get it done and check it off. God, I want to see beyond the task and, and recognize your heart, and I don't want to lose touch of the first love, of you being the first love and loving others. God, in my prayers for us as a church, I don't want to ever lose sight of that. I don't ever want to get comfortable. Lord, we pray for a facility boldly. <laughs> we pray for good doctrine boldly. But man, I don't want to be, I don't want you to turn to us and say, man, you've forsaken your first love. You got it all the rest of it right but you're forsaken our, your first love. So God, quicken that in our hearts every day that we would choose to fall in love with Jesus and what he's done for us, to remember the heights that we have fallen from, to remember your great love and mercy that, that you would stare at us and we would say we are as desperate today for you and your grace as we were the day I first believed, that we need the gospel in us, through us, as much now as we ever have. Let it sustain us. Let it motivate us. God, would the king of our hearts be the mountain where we run, the fountain we drink from. Let it be our song in all that we do and all that we say. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.